you are listening to the 90 Days Later podcast with me, Anna Charles. This is episode lucky number 13. Welcome to the 90 Days Later podcast, where I show you how to stop over drinking in 90 days without missing out on life. If you're not an alcoholic, but fed up with saying yes to a drink when you mean to say no, you're in the right place. Hi all, good morning. I hope everybody is doing well. Thanks for joining the podcast. Okay, so I have just finished watching the Snooker Masters Tournament, finished yesterday. Now, I love snooker. Love, love, love it. If you're not familiar with it, it's a bit like pool, the ball game pool that you find in bars, but just on a huge table and with waistcoats. Lots of people walking around, huge tables, potting balls. And I've been watching this for years, actually, since I was about 14. Absolutely love it. Love to play it. Just love it. So I was watching, as I said, the Masters Tournament. So these are the top 16, top 16 players in the world. So they, they really, really know their stuff. And yet sometimes they can't hit a ball easily. And this is when they are put in what's called a snooker. So a little bit of technical snooper rules here. So you're hitting the white ball and the white ball then has to hit a, 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 a specific ball. So let's say you're going to hit a red ball. But in the, min, in the middle of the white and the red, there's the yellow ball. So you have to hit the red ball without hitting the yellow ball. And if you hit the yellow, you're committing a foul and if you do this, your opponent gets four points, right? So every time the player misses the ball and hits either another ball or just misses it entirely, his opponent gets uh, four points. So they have this rule, but it's so it's not just a case of, you know, one and done. So you miss the ball and then your opponent gets four points. Their player who set the snooker, who laid the trap for the other player can ask the referee to put the balls back. And then that second player, then they have to do it again. They have to try and hit the red ball a second time. And if they they miss it, the first player can ask the referee, you know, put it back again and again and again. And so you'll get to a situation where there's a a player failing and failing and failing. In fact, I think I saw one match where they had the balls put back eight times. Now, this is going on at the same time you're thinking, hmm, why don't they try for a different ball or a different approach? And sometimes, yes, there is the option of another shot, perhaps an easier shot for them. But on that easier shot, if there's a risk that they would they would uh, leave, the, they, you know, leave the situation where it's easier for their opponent to go in and, and hit lots of balls and clean up, so they'd essentially lose the whole frame... The players don't take that. They don't take the easier shot because they know the risk on the other side is 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 higher. So the players are willing, the top players are willing to do the right shot, play the right shot, play the hard shot, risk failing at that and racking up all these penalty points rather than doing the easy shot. And they do this because the easy shot means they're more likely to fail big time by giving the frame away, right? The whole frame, the whole game, if you like. And the way they do this is they play the shot, they miss, they learn, the balls are put back, they adjust their angle or the speed or whatever, and if they miss, they do it again and again and again. And you do see this, the top players, they do adjust. They don't just go down and hit the same shot time and again. You see them do it. You see them calculate and learn. They're learning from failure. And think about it. They're doing this on the international stage with cameras in front of them. And that's, of course, why they're top draw players, because they've gone through all the things that don't work and they know how to evaluate, adapt and try again. 
So watching this snooker tournament really inspired this podcast. So that's my really long intro. And if you haven't seen snooker, do catch it. It is it is phenomenal. Okay. So what I want to talk about today is a hundred fails. And my leading opening question is: If you could have a hundred fails at something, do you think your success will be inevitable? Right. So I was thinking about this when I when I was learning to drive. I hated hated hill starts and. I must uh, qualify, this is with a manual car and you've got clutch and the gears and so on, stick shift. So I hated hill starts, right? I used to always be terrified I'd roll back or I'd stall and not get started. But the question given to me was, if I did 100 hill starts, is it inevitable I'll be able to do a hill start successfully in the end, right? So if I do it often enough, will I eventually be able to do it? And the answer to this is yes, because that happened to me. I actually had to sit and do all these hill starts and it happened actually way before the 100th one came along. So I talk about hill starts and I talk about snooker because I think it helps in a very practical way to see this, how the how failure works. And I actually employ this concept of 100 fails deep in my work. It's how I personally got results with when I was being coached over drinking, how I changed my drinking. I've lived the life, right? I've lived the fails. I've lived the transition. It was painful, but it got me to the other side. Now, let me ask you a question. If you learned to feel the feeling of of an urge to drink without reacting to it and without giving in by drinking and just, you know, experiencing the feeling and going through it and then not drinking, Do you think that if you did that enough, it would totally rewire your relationship with alcohol? Now, of course, I'm going to say yes. In fact, it's absolutely yes. Block caps. But I really want you to sit and think about this for you for a time. How could this be true for you? Because what I have found is that when you do something 100 times, by that 100th time, you'll know how to do it. You'll know what works. You'll know what doesn't work. You'll know all of it. So the follow-up question is, why don't we do this? If we accepted, and there's an if there, but if we accepted that by failing a hundred times at something, that we get, we get the result, we get the result we wanted, would we do it? It's a humdinger of a question. Because if you answer yes, then why is it that we still don't like to fail? Why are we still reticent to put ourselves through the process to get to the other side if we've already acknowledged we want the thing on the other side? So we want to be able to have a take it or leave it attitude around drink. We want to be able to go out to bars and not feel, you know, triggered to drink. If we knew that that was inevitable after failing 100 times, then why don't we do it? Why do we run from failure instead and try to get things right? Why do we run towards perfection from the get-go? And I see this a lot because I think, you know, we're geared up to this. We're taught this from about the age of four through school. At school, we are geared towards success, right? It's all about doing what's right, passing the test, right? You don't maybe have to get top marks, but for heaven's sake, don't fail. I remember when I was in my teenage years, I had a German pen friend and my goodness, it was even worse for them. They had this whole thing called Sitzenbleiben, where if you didn't pass your exams that year, you literally stayed sat, you stayed where you were in the year. So Sitzenbleiben, you stayed in that year, you had to do the year again. 
it was kind of like a form of torture, of public humiliation. I act viscerally remember, you know, the, the German pen friends being so tormented by this. And of course, it drove them to work hard, but, you know, they were being driven by the sense of not wanting to fail rather than, you know, the learning that was involved. So no wonder we're worried about what we think it means about us, what failure means about us. Right, some some immediate reactions, feelings I can come up with are humiliation, disappointment, embarrassment, judgment. And I see this in my work. I speak to people who want to do something about their drinking, but they're afraid of failing and disappointing themselves one more time when they don't get the result they want. Right? They've already envisaged they're not going to get the result they want as they see it. But actually what they're saying, reading between the lines, is that they're already disappointed in themselves right now because they failed before and it didn't work. And so rather than be willing to give it another go and learn from that failure and move beyond disappointment, they'd rather just continue sitting in disappointment. Another reason why we don't like to go for it and be willing to fail is because we're worried about what other people might think about us. Right, which also then translates into us being afraid to ask for help because we're scared of what other people might say. They might think we are less than you know what we want them to think about us. We don't want other people to think things about us that don't feel good. Right? We imagine them thinking these bad things about us. It's not doesn't make us feel good. And so we avoid failure because we don't want to be sort of in that bullseye. Another reason why we won't run from failure is we're worried it means something bad about us. I hear people say that, you know, they shouldn't need a coach to help them drink less. They know they're not an alcoholic and, and then they see everyone around them seems to be able to handle drink okay. And if they can't, that must mean that there's something wrong with them. You know, they must have missed the lesson in life somewhere that tells them how to drink. And so they see that having a coach to help correct this and deal with this is some form of failure, right? Because they need help with something that others don't. And that's completely opposite to my view. I happen to think having a coach is really one of the coolest things ever. Imagine having that person by your side, helping to question what's going on and reveal the blocks and help you move past them. It's just such a magnificent thing. And so what if you need help learning how to drink less? So what? It's just a skill set that you don't have yet. It's a skill set you can acquire. Working with a coach, I happen to think, is one of the fastest ways of getting that skill set. So there's no, there's no judgment needed here, right? There's, it's not a bad thing. It's just something you're choosing. It's an approach you're choosing to remove a block in your life. Okay, so that's all of the reasons why we don't like to fail. Now let's look at how do we protect ourselves from this failure that we so fear. So the first number numero uno, as they say, is perfectionism. And this is when we say, okay, I'm going to give this a go, but we're only going to do that when we're certain we won't fail. Now this sounds incredibly noble very sensible, sounds like the short circuits of success. But of course, it means that we'll never be ready. And so invariably, we won't start. Because if you have to, if the conditions have to be perfect before you begin, 
When are those conditions going to be perfect? Highly unlikely. And so what we end up doing is failing ahead of time because by not taking action, we're sitting in the failure. We're sitting in the condition that we want to change. If we think things like, I really want to change my drinking. I really, really do. Committed to it, but there's always a but. Right now, there's just too much going on with my job and what with the pandemic and everything, you know, I just can't focus on it. And I want to suggest the following. I want to offer that we don't let ourselves go all in with belief that we'll figure it out, which is why we have to have perfect conditions, because of how bad it will hurt if we don't get the result we want, right? So we're just trying to protect ourselves from another set of failure in defeat by saying, okay, we can do that by it being perfect, so we are almost guaranteed uh, to succeed. And if that sounds like you, I really want to offer that you question what's better doing and learning or not doing, right? So learning how to uh, drink less and failing and learning and failing and learning or not doing anything and then just sitting there, you know, with this pain that you want to drink less, but you don't know how. The second way that we protect ourselves from failure is that we pretend the status quo, we pretend our current life is exactly what we want. This is really sneaky. This is where we tell ourselves it's not so bad, right? Things could be worse. It's not so bad that I drink three glasses of night. I mean, it could be worse. I never drink before five and I rarely drink a whole bottle and so on. I want you to challenge these thoughts. Recognize that it's a way for your brain to keep you safe, right? To keep you thinking this way. It's, it's meant with the brain's best intention. It wants you to keep you from feeling the disappointment and embarrassment that will come from failure on your way to success. But really, the key question is, is it worth giving up on exactly what you want for, well, it's not so bad? The third approach that I see frequently when people try to protect us themselves from failure is they say they're willing to fail. Absolutely, I'm all in, I'm going to do it. But now, sneakily, they still aim to get it right first time. And then they're not really all in. This is that we say we're going to give it a go, but we are kind of holding back. Now, in the UK, they have uh, school exams called GCSEs. These are the things that you take when you're 16, right? And they have a couple of levels in there where there are some exams that you can take and you can take the hard, I'm just going to simplify, oversimplify here, but there's the hard exam. And with the hard exam, you can get all the grades, right? You can get an A star all the way down to, I don't even know what the bottom is now, but ungraded. Or you can take a slightly easier version of the exam, which means that you can only get a maximum B grade, right? So you won't get an A, you won't get an A star, be probably more likely to do better in the easier exam. And therefore, a lot of people see that there's a way for them to lock in a B, right? So you can lock in a B rather than going from the A star. And I just want to, when you look at you look at drinking, I want you to ask, which would you rather? Would you rather go all in and find the way that works for you to permanently change how you interact around alcohol, you know, get the sort of the A star, not the perfect approach, but the way that works for you to get the solution you want. Or will you kind of, you know, dip your toe in a little bit, have a little go. Don't ever really get to the point where it's easy for you for the rest of your life. Because I see this in my business. I see this where clients set a goal to not drink that evening. But then what they do 
is they purposefully don't have any wine in the house, right? So it's much easier for them to be successful. And I see how this is a strategy that seems to make sense, but for this to work, it means that not only they'll never be able to be around wine, but you're kind of reinforcing your brain that you're weak around wine. So the only way you can succeed is to not have it around you, which of course then means that the point when you get into temptation in quote unquote the real world and you're surrounded by it, you know, you'll have far fewer skills enabled to handle that situation because you've not really been all in. You've been setting conditions, trying to get the measurement right. Okay, so while we're on talking about fails and, you know, experiencing the, the, the title of this podcast, 100 Fails, I want, I have quite a, I'm going to have a little bit of a rant here on how we count fails. I mean, by all means count them, but please get the measurement right. I have this thing against this fixation with alcohol and counting sober days. This makes no sense to me. And here are my two reasons why. All right, this, this approach where it suggests you can go to, for instance, 88 days without a drink. And then if you drink on the 89th day, this conventional wisdom says, all right, you need to go straight back to day one. Got to reset the counter. And so what I question is, so all of those 88 days when you weren't drinking, that counted for nothing, right? You learned nothing. You aren't even a teeny tiny step further along your journey to where you want to be. It's unbelievable to me because I guarantee you've learned things about yourself and your drinking in that time that you hadn't seen or known before. And so it makes no sense to me to say, right, you just got to go back to square one. Sort of feels like you're a beginner and that, you know, you know nothing. All right. So that's that's the first problem I have with it. Second issue I have with counting days is a day is a very blunt unit of measure. Now, for most people, when it comes to drinking, they feel most triggered in the evenings and the nights, right? So the so the f- more the day goes on, the more it's kind of building up. This is I'm gonna it's gonna get more tricky with me. Late afternoon sometimes too, but for most of the clients I work with who aren't alcoholics, who just want to feel more in control of their drinking, the mornings aren't a problem at all. Now lunchtime perhaps is a bit of a trigger point, but then they feel nothing really till about five in the evening. Then from five till let's say about ten or even eleven you could feel 15 urges to drink when you get in from work, when you see the fridge, when you start cooking, when your husband pours himself a beer, when you sit down to eat, when you watch TV and you see the characters on on the TV swigging wine and so on and so on and so on. It can feel like you're facing a, a tidal wave of them, an onslaught. And to think that if on just one of these 15, 16, 17 opportunities you giving to you, that you give in to a drink and that you then call it a failure and go back to square one, it just seems wrong and not helpful, right? You could have given, you could have allowed 14 urges. Think of everything you'll have learned about yourself by not uh, not resisting and not drinking. And then on the 15th, you know, you, you do, you have a lapse, you have a slip up. Why should you then go back to square one? So this is why I don't count days, but I count urges to drink. Completely different scale. How many urges can you experience in a day? Right, each one of them is a learning opportunity. So you opened the fridge and you poured a glass. 
But did you only pour half a glass? Did you only drink three glasses, not four? Look at how you handle each urge and learn from that. Count the urges, not the days. So in summary, if you want to succeed at anything, I truly believe failure is your friend, even though we've been taught our whole lives that you know this is not the case. Now, I'm not saying you're going to enjoy the experience. I mean, really, who does? But if you see that protecting yourself from failure just means that you're going to keep stuck, you know, you're then choosing to feel disappointment now rather than to feel the potential of disappointment as you move forward on your journey. You can't figure out how to do something right without being willing to get it wrong. Let me, let me repeat that, something I say to myself a lot and said to myself certainly a lot as I was uh, achieving freedom around alcohol. You can't figure out how to do something right without being willing to get it wrong. An opportunity to fail is an opportunity to learn. And that's how I'll end this. An opportunity to fail is an opportunity to learn. Thank you so much for listening. I sincerely hope this has given you some food for thought. So go out there and be fearless, be willing to fail, be willing to learn from the experience. Okie dokie. So I'm going to end it there. Please do rate and review and share with someone you love or someone who you think would benefit from my teachings. And if you have any questions, you can reach me at Anna at 90dayslater.co and I'll see you next week. If you want to achieve total freedom around alcohol fast, having a coach is the way to make it happen. So I'm inviting you to a discovery call to see if we'd be a good fit. This is a completely free of charge, no strings attached call. You can sign up in the show notes or by emailing Anna at 90dayslater.co. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd leave a rating and review to help others find the 90 Days Later podcast. 